but the Propius May trial was excellent in terms of determining that we shouldn't be doing bone scan and CT uh, for staging these patients. We should be doing PSMA PET scans. Hi and welcome to this episode of the Terragnostic Talks podcast. My name is Gustav Vidar and together with me in the studio I have the fantastic Annette Andrian. Welcome Annette. Thank you Gustav. So good to talk to you again. How are you today? Ah, oh, it's morning so you have not been doing so much oh, this Oh yeah, day. I, I wake up very early. So since five I have been organizing things and yeah, preparing. and. Great. Uh, I'm a little bit excited for today's guest. It's Who is it? Louise Emmett, Professor Louise Emmett, wow. Yes, and today we will focus on Louise, of course, but also on prostate cancer and the diagnostic approach of prostate cancer. I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, she's impressively productive and smart and best of all, she's looking forward to a lot of good things for the future. Yes, so I think we go for the presentation. Professor Louise Emmett is Director of Theranostics and Nuclear Medicine at St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney, one of the world's leading experts in prostate cancer. What she really enjoys is clinical research. She has been and is involved in several multi-site, multidisciplinary cancer research in Australia, including both imaging and therapy. For Louise, clinical research is crucial. It optimizes treatments and improves lives. And she is impressively productive. Louise has published over 80 original papers in peer-reviewed journals in the last 10 years, received a number of grants for clinical research and received large research funds. Professor Emmett is, as you will hear, deeply committed to her work, eager to develop tomorrow's prostate cancer care. Welcome, Louise. Monday morning in Sydney, you are at the office at St. Winsett Public Hospital. What have you been doing today? Well, today, uh, actually, today is Monday afternoon. Uh, and I'm very lucky today is my research day. So today I have been working on some papers and finishing things and submitting for publication. So you have research in days and then you have clinical days as well, or? Yeah, well, actually, uh, what I do in our um, hospital is we are allowed to work uh, 10-hour days uh, rather than eight-hour days. So I do four 10-hour days uh, a week, and then I have one day in which I can choose to do uh, what I want. And what I really enjoy doing is uh, clinical research. Uh, we will de dedicate this episode to talk about prostate cancer, uh, and we are so glad to have you here. Uh, you're an expert in this field. Uh, but before we deep uh, in dive in deep in that, how did you end up working with prostate cancer? Uh, you're a nuclear medicine specialist uh, who started with the myocardial imaging. Uh, I know that you mentioned some middle age cries or something. <laughs> Yeah, I had midlife crisis. In fact, um, you know, I was looking on so jealously. I was working in a small hospital um, in Sydney and I was working in nuclear cardiology and there were these massive advances being made in molecular imaging uh, in 2012. And 
I really wanted to get involved in that. Uh, so I was lucky enough to get a job uh, in the nuclear medicine department, it was called then, uh, at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney, and I reported my first PET scan. And, and at that stage, I started looking around for things that were a little bit new or weird and wonderful. And uh, prostate cancer looked really interesting at the time. In fact, it's a bit historical because at that stage it was choline, uh, fluorinated choline uh, PET imaging that, that wasn't introduced at all um, clinically in New South Wales or, or in Sydney. And I thought that we could start with that. And I wrote a series of grants and got uh, what I call a magic box, which is a, uh, a box that can fabricate uh, radionuclides uh, for imaging and for therapy and a radiochemist. And, and we took off. Um, and our first grant was a grant from Movember for prostate cancer in choline, uh, PET and MRI. Uh, reading about you, it's clear that you are dedicated to your job. Uh, what keeps you committed? It's actually really fun. Uh, you know, I, I, I tell everyone it's a bit like a, a you know, a, when you're in your final year of high school and you have to do science experiments, except the science experiments are so much more interesting uh, than we used to do at school. We get to combine physics and uh, pathology and biology and chemistry all together. And then we, we get to put weird and wonderful things into people and make them feel better. Uh, I, I think it would be difficult to find a better job. And, and, and the other thing I really love about clinical research is as a doctor, you get to help people one at a time. But when you do clinical research, you actually help many, many people, potentially millions of people if you do the right trial uh, and you can change practice for the better. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I am deeply committed to my job, but, but that's because my job is super fun. Wow. Congratulations. A perfect match. And, uh, <laughs> no, it's, and it's, it's so good to hear. I, I think uh, you are fortunate and also the rest of the people are fortunate that can benefit from, from, from this. Oh, um, I, I think that you know, if more people knew what nuclear medicine and, and theranostics was like, uh, you know, really what it involved, uh, they'd be flocking to the specialty. It's, it's very interesting. And also that's why we're sitting here discussing <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> we need yeah. more people in the field. Okay, let's start a little bit with prostate cancer. You said that uh, uh, teragnosis is going to change the prostate cancer care fundamentally. How? Yeah, I think it's really, uh, it's going to change uh, the management of prostate cancer right from diagnosis through to the very end stage when men are in palliative care. And um, and that is because of the new agents that we've got now, the new uh, PET and therapy agents uh, or the theranostic agents uh, that are so uh, so well able to, to be used in a predictive and prognostic manner and also are really, really good for diagnosis and diagnostic accuracy as well. Um, so I think there have been trials that are undertaken in the last couple of years and are ongoing really stretching from when a man is first diagnosed with prostate cancer right up to right up to the end. Uh, so it will change. It already has changed uh, the management of prostate cancer and it will continue to do so, I think, pretty significantly for the next 10 years. And what do you see? What do you see when you say like that? Yeah, so, so uh, you know, I think we can take it from uh, diagnosis at the moment uh, yeah. in Europe and in Australia and, you know, a little bit more in the, in the US, uh, we do MRI for the diagnosis of prostate cancer. 
Mm. What's becoming increasingly um, obvious, certainly to me, is that we're going to be using the PET agents for the diagnosis of prostate cancer in conjunction with MRI. And that if we're, you know, if we do that, we're going to be able to be much more accurate as to whether a man has a significant malignancy or not. Uh, and we're going to reduce the number of biopsies that are actually required. So I think, you know, prostate biopsies are pretty invasive uh, procedure. Men don't really want to have, you know, 30 needles in a very sensitive you know, place. Uh, and if, if we can uh, get better with our imaging uh, then and reduce the number of biopsies that are required, that's a significant change. And, and I think that we can definitely do that. We're uh, doing what we call the primary trial at the moment, which is 300 men who are having uh, PSMA PET, uh, MRI, and then going for biopsy. And that's shown a, a really nice value add for uh, the diagnosis or the screening of prostate cancer. So uh, then you use some some image guided biopsies then. So you, you can use, use the image guided image. biopsy. Yeah. Yep. At the moment, what they do is they do MRI guided biopsy, or they put the MR onto the ultrasound. Mm. Uh, mm. But what we're starting to do, and and I think will become increasingly common, is to fuse the MR with the PSMA PET, uh, and then to use that for guidance. Uh, okay. it, it very much looks like MR and PSMA are both very good for the diagnosis of prostate cancer, but they quite mm. often pick up slightly different things. And mm. you might have an MR negative lesion, which actually has significant malignancy, and that's picked up by the PSMA. Sometimes PSMA is negative, but it's picked up by the MR. So the two together, it's pretty spectacular uh, at detecting uh, significant prostate cancer because you know, as you probably know, prostate cancer is a spectrum. So we don't want to pick up the very low-grade cancers. We want to just leave them alone. They're probably not going to do much in that man's lifetime. He doesn't need to have a radical prostatectomy or you know, a very invasive procedure. We want to pick up the cancers that are going to you know, cause harm uh, enough to need to have significant invasive surgery or radiotherapy. And so developing uh, tools such as PET-MR that can do that really, really well is where we should be heading, you know, without needles. Um, yeah. So I think that perhaps when we talk about being able to pick up significant and insignificant malignancy, what we need to do is think about how PSMA actually works. Uh, so PSMA, is a, it's a receptor on the prostate cancer cell surface that we're targeting with a PET agent. Uh, and what's really interesting about that receptor is that it's actually a, a growth agent. So if you have a lot of PSMA on your cancer cell, then that's a cancer cell that knows how to grow really effectively, uh, and it's more likely to become metastatic, more likely to be more aggressive. So in fact, PSMA is a very natural fit for diagnosis because it's going to pick up the bad players, not so much the good ones. Uh, and that's one change that I think will happen in the next 10 years, I think that we're going to be changing the way that we diagnose prostate cancer and it's going to become more accurate. I'm working a lot with, with prostate cancer uh, and, and sometimes I'm talking to, to urologists uh, and they don't want to use PSMA PET because they are afraid that patients will be overtreated. They don't see the benefits for the patients and they are some, I think if you listen to some urologists, they say they are afraid of a new PSA that will over-diagnose patients. Yeah. What do you think? So I don't think we should be doing PSMA as a screening tool like we have PSA. I mm. think we should. it should definitely be coming after 
PSA. Uh, mm. and in fact, I think it can be used in conjunction with uh, MRI to actually reduce the number of biopsies. In the mm. um, primary trial, we actually used the two together uh, mm. and compared it to a, a template biopsy. And we found we were actually able to, there's probably about 38% of men who have an equivocal MRI or an, an MRI that's negative, but they're still worried about, you know, whether or not this patient has cancer. Those men will be going for biopsy. And if it's negative on PSMA PET, very, very few of those men actually had significant malignancy. So my hope is we can actually de-intensify uh, biopsies and de-intensify treatment using PSMA PET, as well as appropriately intensify treatment. I do think it's quite good at stratifying. Uh, and I guess time will tell whether I'm whether I'm right. So maybe there will be a takeoff for PET MRIs now. No. The, yeah, the PET MRI I, well, camera. It's, it's going to be really interesting to see. But you know, I used to I used to look at PET MR and go, oh, I'm really not sure how that's ever going to be used. Uh, you know, is it really useful? But with prostate, yeah. I can I can see a use for it. Uh, yeah. Certainly, one of the things that we did in the primary trial was we only did uh, a pelvic uh, PSMA PET, so mm. just a tiny field of view. Uh, it took six minutes to undertake the scan, um, mm. and we didn't do the whole body because you didn't we didn't need to look for metastatic disease. These guys didn't have cancer as such they'd never been diagnosed so we were able to get the radiation dose down uh, in each patient mm. quite low uh, in fact mm. that would very much suit uh, a pet mr camera where you're doing the MPMRI and you're doing the psma pet scan at the same time but of course we need to do all the studies to prove um, that that is valuable in addition to uh, the diagnosis to tool that uh, sounds really terrific what more do you see louise for the for the future so um, when we first started uh, with, uh, you know, in, back in 2012, we started with choline and then we moved to PSMA PET. The very first thing that we were actually investigating was men who'd had radical prostatectomy and their disease had spread. So the PSA was rising uh, and that happens in about 30 to 50% of men who have a radical prostatectomy, their disease will come back. And in the past, um, what happened was they did blind salvage phosphoradiotherapy to the uh, to the surgical site, mm. uh, and that cured about 50% of men. And there's a mm. lot of evidence to show that uh, radiotherapy in men who have a rising PSA following radical prostatectomy is, is very effective. Mm. But only about half of those men actually um, benefit from that. The other half just fail, uh, and they go on mm. needing systemic treatments and, you know, perhaps getting chemotherapy or hormone therapy or other things. What was really um, sort of eye-opening uh, for PSMA PET was in the biochemical recurrence. We went from not being able to see where the disease had recurred to being able to see it. Uh, and that was a huge eureka moment for just about everyone who was doing uh, PSMA PET. Uh, and, the, and the other interesting thing is you can do that with choline PET, of course, as well. You know, you have a biochemical, biochemical recurrence and you can find a site of distant disease. But the difference is uh, is that with choline PET, you need a PSA of about two nanograms per mil to be able to identify where the disease is. And the problem with a PSA of two nanograms per mil after radical prostatectomy is it's too high. So the, the disease uh, has spread too far, the PSA is too high, and very few of those men are actually curable. What, what became very clear when we were looking at PSMA PET compared to choline was now we could actually identify where the disease recurrence was with a PSA of 0.2, not mm. 2. 
uh, so much lower, so much earlier at the time of disease recurrence. Um, and that helped, you know, that became very exciting because now you can say, oh, I can see the disease and we should treat it. And then, you know, we went a little bit further. So, of course, what happened then, everyone started seeing disease, treating that disease, no matter where it was, if it was distant, if it was local or whether it was metastatic. But once again, I think we made a mistake in being able to see the disease and treating the disease that we could see. Uh, we weren't always helping that patient. Um, and we had some men who, uh, you know, would turn up and they'd have some lymph nodes that were positive on the PSMA PET and they'd go mm. off to salvage radiotherapy and, mm. you know, it didn't help them. They'd turn up three months later and they had more disease elsewhere. And, mm. you know, I think that we need to move a little bit further, getting more intelligent about how we, we treat these patients because well, for a start we know that PSMA PET, if you can see it, probably means it's not a great cancer. It probably means it's already systemic. So mm. we need to get around to perhaps even thinking about uh, treating the cancers we can't see. And what became very clear was if you have a negative scan on a PSMA PET after biochemical recurrence mm. and then you actually treated those men locally with salvage fossil radiotherapy, those mm. men do really, really well. We went from a treatment response rate of, you know, all men only 50% to if they have a negative PSMA PET and you give them salvage fossil radiotherapy like you would traditionally, 85 to 90% of those men actually respond really well to the radiotherapy and don't have any disease at three years after treatment. So it's really interesting. When you introduce these new technologies, you think you know what you're doing uh, and you slowly realise that uh, you don't. And for the first few years, you probably don't actually benefit the patient. So that's why these trials are so important for us to sort of understand mm. how we should use it uh, so we can see a lot more, but we don't always see everything and perhaps what we should be doing in this biochemical recurrence is treating those things we can't see, not treating those things we can see, or at least not all of the things that we can see. Um, and so once again, uh, you know, it's about how best how best we treat and perhaps de-intensifying the treatment. We can't. We can't irradiate every single spot that we see on a PSMA PET scan if a patient's got biochemical recurrence. Uh, and, you know, some of those trials are in train. Jeremy Collet is doing a, um, a randomised trial where mm. patients with biochemical recurrence are being randomised to PSMA versus no PSMA uh, in the guidance to see whether a PSMA is actually improving their treatment responses at three years. Oh. And I, I think that's... Um, a really important trial. Yes, it's very important. When can we expect any signs from that? Uh, so unfortunately, it takes a couple of years because the, uh, I mean, mm. the, you know, the, the the proof, the pudding is in the eating and uh, uh, mm. in biochemical recurrence, it's really five-year outcomes that people like to look at. So if you have mm. treatment and at five years uh, you've got good disease control, then that can be taken very seriously. We have some information in non-randomised trials up to three years, but we have no information up to five years for PSMA PET. Mm. So uh, I think probably in about uh, your podcast in about two or three years could um, could come up mm. with some of that information. And in the meantime, we're all just going to have to do uh, the best that we can. Um, in Australia, mm. certainly, the PSMA PET has taken off um, and we're doing a lot of PSMA PET in Australia uh, in, in routine clinical care. Uh, and a lot of that is, is, is because it's readily available. 
So it's what you use it for in Australia. It's biochemical recurrence that we talk about and some staging as well. So we started, uh, you know, in the very beginning when we first uh, introduced uh, PSMAPET in biochemical recurrence, because that's, the, you know, that's one of the key questions for clinicians. Uh, we don't want to irradiate this patient if we don't need to irradiate them for biochemical recurrence. So we'd love to know where it is. And that was a burning question. And that really started the whole PSMAPET sort of um, train in, in Australia. Staging, though, I think Australia has done really well. Uh, with the ProPSMA study that was published in The Lancet last year. Uh, and so that was a, a study of 300 men who had intermediate or high-risk prostate cancer. And uh, the question was, is PSMA PET better than CT or bone scan for staging of men who were going for definitive uh, treatment of their, of their prostate cancer? So it was a fairly high-risk group. Um, so it was men who had a fairly high um, Gleason score, uh, high PSA, and fairly large tumours uh, at a clinical at a clinical staging level. But what that study found was uh, PSMA PET was much better than either CT or bone or CT and bone scan uh, for the detection of you know uh, distant metastases. So um, you know I, I think that was a that was a provided phase or you know. Uh, level one evidence for the use of PSMA PET in the staging of men with intermediate and high-risk prostate cancer. Uh, very nice trial. And, and so we're definitely using it for those patients uh, in Australia for the staging of prostate cancer. There are some other studies that have been done in the staging of prostate cancer that show that, you know, we've got some more work to do. Um, one of the things is the physics of um, PET imaging. We, we mm. don't detect very small deposits um, of mm. cancer. Basically, you need about four millimetres cubed to detect, uh, of, mm. of cancer to detect a lesion on, on, on a PET camera just because of the physics of the camera itself with partial voluming effect. So we don't, we don't have an app, you know, 100% sensitivity for lymph nodal involvement with prostate cancer because some of those lymph nodes are a millimetre or mm. half a millimetre yep. in size. Um, mm. So once again, like with the biochemical recurrence, we have to figure out how we should be using it. You know, should patients mm. who have a negative PSMA PET but have high risk for uh, lymph nodal involvement in the prostate, should they have a lymph node dissection or should they not have a lymph node dissection? Mm. You know, we're still figuring mm. it out. But the pro-PSMA trial was excellent in terms of determining that we shouldn't be doing bone scan and CT uh, for staging these patients. We should be doing PSMA PET scans. Okay, if we're looking a bit uh, further to, to the metastatic disease, do we have a role for PET-CT or PSMA imaging there as well? Yeah, so uh, I would say that there will be a role for PSMA-PET in, in the sort of in metastatic disease. Uh, I did some early studies, uh, in, especially in the oligometastatic setting. So say you've got patients who've just got one to three metastatic lesions. Uh, quite often they're treated focally. Um, and if you compare conventional imaging to uh, PSMA PET imaging, there's been a couple of papers that have done that. And conventional imaging underestimates uh, the volume of disease or the number of lesions by about 50%. Mm. Uh, oh. and, and, and the really interesting thing about that is treatment of oligometastatic disease is, is quite important in prostate cancer. Mm. It, uh, it's been shown to slow down progression of disease. If you've only got two or three lesions, perhaps you can treat them focally with radiotherapy or with surgery. Uh, but you have to know there's only two or three. 
So mm. we know now that conventional imaging is underestimating uh, oh. the, the number of lesions, which means that obviously if you're only going to treat two lesions but you've got six, uh, then that, that disease, that treatment's not going to work. Um, mm -hmm. And there's, yeah. a, there's a, a nice study, which is uh, the Oriol study, uh, that was published mm. in the Journal of Clinical Oncology um, uh, last year. And what that yeah. was, it was a study of oligometastatic treatment where they irradiated one to three lesions. Um, and the patients uh, actually had a PSMA PET scan, but they didn't use it in the study. But they post hoc analysed the effect of the PSMA PET. And what they found was, A, if you uh, treated uh, the metastatic lesions versus just observing them, uh, there was a significant improvement in progression-free survival. But B, if you had a PSMA PET where it agreed with the conventional imaging in terms of the number of lesions, those patients did very well. If the PSMA PET didn't agree and there were more lesions identified in the PSMA PET than were treated, then those patients did poorly. And that, that's exactly what you would expect. Um, so, so really what it shows is PSMA PET's very good at identifying all the lesions that need to be treated. And so if you're going to be considering oligometastatic treatment, then, then you should be doing something that's got a higher sensitivity for metastatic disease like PSMA PET rather than CT or bone scan to identify those mm. lesions. And what we have to do now is we have to do trials where we embed the PSMA PET up front. Uh, mm. We don't just keep it as an innocent bystander. We actually embed it and we use it to uh, see if we can treat those patients and then randomise. So uh, really that's where we're up to now is we need to um, start embedding these new technologies into large clinical trials so we mm. can, you know, see how well they work. They can become routine clinical practice. Mm. Right. Cool. Cool. Good. Uh, we're talking with uh, Rodney Hicks for some weeks ago and he, he talked about the importance of uh, understanding the tumor and he, he's talking you know taking different pet rates like FDG and PSMA to to understand the uh, the biology of the tumor yeah yeah uh, and he's done such great work in that I, I love um, he used to, always used to talk about um, what was it fruitcake and sultanas <laughs> you had to pick out the sultanas and yeah uh, <laughs> and looking at combining FDG and PSMA together <laughs> And that's certainly yeah. something that we've been doing in um, the metastatic prostate cancer setting yeah. uh, a lot where we do both fluorine deoxyglucose PET and we do PSMA PET. And there yeah. was a very nice paper um, uh, by Pascal that was, that was published last year that really showed uh, how much heterogeneity there is uh, in yeah. each lesion of prostate cancer and also between the lesions. So if you've got metastatic yeah. disease and, and with PSMA, uh, some lesions have very nice uptake or homogeneous PSMA activity and some have none at all. Um, mm. And that's one of the things that combining the FDG and the PSMA do uh, is it mm. allows us to see all the lesions, not just the ones mm. that are PSMA positive. Uh, we've certainly been using that when we um, screen patients to see whether they're going to be eligible for um, PSMA-targeted treatment. If mm. you don't have the receptor when you're using PSMA-targeted treatment, you're not going to respond particularly well to that treatment. In mm. fact, you're going to fail at the doubling time of the, the PSMA-negative cells. So mm. some patients don't have any treatment at what all. Is the, what is the, uh, um, what is the 
largest burning platform? What is the most important burning platform? I mean, what what to to have the strategy of of treating what is the most uh, crucial for the moment because it can also change over time, right? As you say, yeah. it's uh, fantastic. It can change within the tumor or the cells, and it can change between different uh, parts of the different lesions. It's, it's, it's actually one of the really tricky things about looking at PET scans in um, metastatic prostate cancer, because once you move to metastatic prostate cancer, you're, you're dealing with a very, very aggressive form of cancer. It's, uh, it's, it changes, as you say, it's, its phenotype changes very fast. Um, and you, it might change between treatments. It's very interesting. Sometimes when we do all these screenings to see whether patients will be eligible for PSMA-targeted therapy, um, we'll get a patient and we'll screen them and they have not very much PSMA activity at all. And we go, look, we're really sorry. You're not going to respond to the treatment and uh, you're not going to be eligible and, um, and uh, you know, let's try something else. So that they might try something else and then perhaps they're eligible for screening for another trial and they come back and their phenotype has completely changed. Um, and now it's become much more PSMA avid as the phenotype has. Perhaps, perhaps you talk about, uh, you know, I think in prostate cancer, you end up with multiple, multiple different types of cancer all at once. So you get ones with hundreds of different phenotypes. Uh, and some, can some treatments will knock off whole clones of those and you'll be left with the other clones that are still growing. Um, probably, that probably doesn't make much sense, but um, it's it, it's a completely different ballpark in metastatic prostate cancer compared to the earlier stage. And, and I agree that we do need to be doing FDG PET and we need to be doing uh, PSMA PET and, and possibly other things. You know, it's when we first started this, and we were looking at patients with metastatic disease, I thought, we won't need bone scan anymore. You know, we don't need to do conventional imaging anymore. It's going to be fantastic. We just need to do um, PSMA PET and FDG mm. PET, and we have all the information that we need. Mm. But in fact, I, I, I'm wrong. Uh, I'm wrong. Uh, because of the heterogeneity and the changes that you mm. see in metastatic prostate cancer, PSMA PET's not the whole answer there. Um, quite yeah. often you'll have whole lesions that you just can't see at all on the scan. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sometimes those lesions, you won't actually see them on FDG either, but you'll pick yeah. them up on the bone scan. So the, yeah. the phenotypic variation in metastatic prostate cancer is, you know, very broad. And um, yeah. I've gone from thinking it's simple and we've solved the problem to, to not really being very clear at all. Uh, yeah how we're best going to use it in prostate cancer, in, in metastatic, castro-resistant mm. prostate cancer. Mm. So you have to be humble to nature. You don't know. Really. <laughs> no, <laughs> no solution. I, I, think, I, think, I think we'll figure it out. And there's, you know, a, it's, it's actually really, really fascinating space, metastatic, castro-resistant prostate cancer. And I think we are going to, um, you know, sort of slowly work it out. One of the... Mm. One of the things is, you know, one of the cornerstones of treatment with prostate cancer is the androgen manipulation of the androgen receptor. So there's a whole lot of treatments um, that involve blocking the androgen receptor, uh, blocking production of testosterone. And um, one of the really interesting things in, in metastatic prostate cancer is this interaction between the androgen receptor and the PSMA receptor. 
If you block the androgen receptor, it actually sort of upregulates the PSMA receptor in uh, significantly. So, and I think the PSMA receptor is a mechanism of resistance uh, to androgen mm. blockade that some probably about two thirds of prostate cancer cells use. So it's really interesting in, in prostate cancer when the cells really well behaved, um, when the patients are first diagnosed or in biochemical recurrence, the intensity scores sit at about six to 10. Uh, but sometimes you get up in metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancers and they get up to about 300. Uh, and there's this massive upregulation that you get of the PSMA receptor in metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer. That's almost certainly a response of the cell to androgen blockade. So once we put the patient on hormone treatment, the cells using the PSMA receptor as a growth agent um, and, and, it's, and it's very strong. And it's fantastic actually in uh, metastatic carcerate resistant prostate cancer because we can use that mechanism against the cell itself. You know, we can trick mm. the cell into overexpressing um, overexpressing the PSMA mm. and uh, oh. then we knock it off with lutetium PSMA therapy or targeted PSMA therapy. Mm. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that we're definitely going to be doing. Uh, we're mm. going to be using combination treatments to to mm. treat but i've probably got ahead of myself because i haven't talked about lutetium psma or treatment at all yet so <laughs> i'm raving <laughs> but it's interesting because that was really a question before when you talked about this phenotype that is it it acts in very different th uh, ways and it can uh, develop in the uh, oh, change in different ways and and really yeah. the mecha the mechanism of action be be behind that I don't expect that you have the answer, but I mean, some thinking about that. Yeah, so um, I, I think we are pretty clear now uh, in one of the ways that the phenotype changes is by the manipulation of the androgen receptor. So use, blocking the androgen receptor, we know in mice, definitely upregulates the PSMA receptor. Um, and in fact, we did a little study because, uh, you know, I thought, a few years ago, it looked like that happened in both the hormone-sensitive and the castrate-resistant space. And I thought that's a fantastic way of increasing sensitivity. If we can just put a patient on two weeks of hormone therapy uh, and and then do the PSMA PET scan, we'll be able to see, you know, 10 times as much. And so we did this little study uh, at St Vincent's where we took men who were newly diagnosed metastatic disease, uh, who were still hormone-sensitive, hadn't had any treatment, and we did... a a baseline, and then we did three more PETs, day 9, 18, and 28, after they started their hormone treatment. And then we took men who were metastatic castrate resistant who'd failed hormones, so the PSA was rising after they were on hormone treatment and were starting on either abiraterone or enzalutamide, another hormone therapy, and we did exactly the same baseline, day 9, day 18, and 28. And what we found was really interesting. Instead of getting more sensitive in the hormone-sensitive setting, hmm. it actually turned off. So we saw less. So there was a 30% reduction in intensity uh, by day nine in the men who were newly diagnosed, but in the men who were metastatic castrate resistant, so a little bit further along, uh, in fact, we saw a 30% increase or a 40% increase in the intensity of receptor or intensity on the PSMA PET scan. We saw more lesions. And so I think that uh, PSMA as a receptor is actually probably a, a marker of androgen resistance. So it's one of the tools the cells use to overcome androgen resistance, which is why we see it so much more in the metastatic castrate resistance space, so much more brightly. And that's definitely something that we can use 
yeah. against prostate cancer. Um, mm. and, I, and I think that combining uh, the androgen receptor and, and any PSMA-targeted therapies together will be very useful. Mm. There's a really nice paper uh, that came out just uh, about a month ago by Catherine Zukatinsky and Stephen Rowe, uh, and what mm. they did was they took um, 16 men who had metastatic carcinoid-resistant prostate cancer who were starting on enzalutamide, um, and they just did two pets on them. They did one at baseline and they did one about three months after uh, mm. starting the treatment and then they followed them for a couple of years. And what they found was if those patients actually got an increase in receptor activity with the treatment at three months, so if the, if the scan got brighter from baseline mm. when they started on hormone treatment, uh, those patients did worse. So they didn't, mm -hmm. they didn't respond as long uh, to the hormone treatment and uh, they died earlier, uh, which is really mm. interesting and, and it totally makes biological sense. If the mm. PSMA receptor is um, one of you know is a a mechanism of resistance that the cell uses against androgen uh, receptor treatments, then it would make sense that if it's able to upregulate, that cell is able to upregulate, then it will escape earlier and mm. uh, do bad things. Mm. Interesting. More aggressive. Yeah, it is. Yeah, because it could be a role for pet, 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 PSMA PET imaging for these symptomatic therapies as well to really understand. Yes, yes, and we haven't really done that. So I think there's a couple uh, of small studies that have looked in patients mm. who've been on chemotherapy with docetaxel and have mm. found once again that it is prognostic. Uh, volume of disease is prognostic uh, mm. for outcome. But we really mm. haven't done a lot in this space at all, and and I think that that's something that we'll do in the next few years. Um, mm. So the Zukatinsky paper was just sixteen patients, but really, really interesting. Um, mm. And and we need to do that in large number of patients, and we need to do that, you know, perhaps if a patient's got high or low volume uh, PSMA Abbott disease or high or low volume FDG mm. Abbott disease. Um, we can end up developing nomograms that will help us decide which, which treatment the patient should be on, which combination mm. of treatments the patient should be on in the metastatic castro-resistant mm. space. Uh, and we should treat to the phenotype of the disease mm. rather than mm. just having standard mm. treatment, which is mm. pretty well what we've got at the moment. Mm. Talk about personalised uh, medicine and treatment. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's precision. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's absolutely personalised, uh, and I think that Theranostics lends itself to personalised treatment so well. Identify the phenotype, uh, you know, use it for predictive and prognostic purposes, uh, mm. and then also, um, you know, what combination treatments the patient should be on. So then we need to talk a little bit more about the treatments. Uh, you have done some trials in Australia and you're doing some trials in Australia. I know that. And we know that the the big vision trial is it will be published later this year. Yeah. Uh, could you give us some, where are we now when we are, where are we going of the treatment of prostate cancer? Yeah. So uh, we managed to publish, or Michael Hoffman and the ANZAP trials group um, mm. published the therapy trial uh, very mm. recently, about four weeks mm. ago in The Lancet, uh, mm. and that was a, a study that was done around Australia. Uh, very proud yeah. of how Australia did in, in, um, in putting out such a high-quality high quality study. So essentially it was yes. 200 men who, had, uh, who were randomised, so they had metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Mm. All men were screened with... Um, 
both an FDG and a PSMA PET, and they had to, there were quite strict criteria uh, before they could get on the trial. They had to have mm. quite bright disease on the PSMA PET mm. scan uh, with mm. an SCV max of 20, and they had to have no evidence of mismatch. So there were no cells that didn't have significant PSMA receptor activity on them, uh, and that's what we used the, the FDG PET for. Then they were randomised to either cabazitaxel chemotherapy or lutetium PSMA uh, 617 mm. um, treatment, six doses uh, every mm. six weeks. And we used quite a high mm. dose of the lutetium PSMA 617, so 8.5 gigs going down uh, each time, just a little bit less so we could minimise the toxicity to the salivary glands. Mm. Uh, and mm. what that trial showed was that patients who received lutetium PSMA 617 had a treatment response rate of 66%, greater than 50% reduction in PSA, compared to 37% for uh, cabazitaxel mm. chemotherapy. So a significant improvement in, uh, in PSA response rate. Mm. It also, also significantly increased a PSA progression-free survival, radiographic progression-free survival, uh, mm. and quality of life indicators, including control of pain. Um, mm. And that was in men who'd already failed docetaxel chemotherapy, uh, mm. so, you know, relatively end stage in their disease. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it's going to be really interesting when the vision trial comes out um, yeah. because there were significant differences between uh, the two trials. Mm. The therapy trial re relied on quite um, strict screening criteria for the PSMA PET yeah. and also did an FDG PET. The vision yeah. trial uh, did not require an FDG PET, um, but did have conventional imaging bone scan and CT scan to look for discordance on the PSMA PET. But one of the really big things was um, the intensity of activity that needed to be identified on the PSMA PET for enrolment on the vision mm. trial was different to the therapy trial. So for the vision trial, you needed to have um, activity equal to or above liver on the PSMA PET mm. scan. So all mm. the lesions, all the, mm. the metastatic sites had to have activity that was equal to or above liver. That's mm. probably about liver intensity on a PSMA PET scan sits between 2 and 11. Uh, mm. And the intensity that we required for the therapy trial was an SU max of 20. So probably mm. about twice or three times that that was required on the vision trial. So it's going to be extremely, well, it's going to be very interesting to see whether the treatment responses uh, mm. were the same. Yeah. We know uh, that overall survival um, has been reported as positive um, on the vision trial, but uh, mm. in terms of that depth of treatment response, possibly is going to be quite different. Mm. Um, yeah, so looking forward to yeah. that. So what do you, then to, to clarify, how do you think about that? If you What's my uh, bet? Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> my bet, uh, so, so I think that if you don't select your patients uh, as intensely as we did on the therapy trial, you would expect that the treatment response will be about 36%. Uh, mm. So it's going to be lower than with mm. the uh, therapy trial. But one of the things mm. they did on the vision trial um, is they played a little bit with this androgen receptor, PSMA receptor interaction. So while mm. patients were waiting to be screened on the vision trial, uh, they were mm. quite often put on an androgen signaling inhibitor such as abiraterone or enzalutamide. Mm. Mm. And they were, I think they were allowed to be on that uh, for the duration of the trial. 
Now, mm -hmm. if this interaction between the androgen receptor and the PSMA receptor is very, very strong, then maybe that will mitigate some of the differences in terms of the screening mm. um, differences in the therapy trial. So mm. I'm not sure what the difference will be now between therapy and vision. Maybe they'll be closer than we actually think they're going to be. <laughs> uh, <Yeah. laughs> um, so you can improve responses by uh, to PSMA-targeted agents by screening patients and only taking those men who have quite bright disease. Um, and you can probably improve responses by combining it with an agent that's going to upregulate the receptor anyway. Mm. It's all about, you know, what levers you push and what levers you pull and, you know, how you're going to improve those responses. And I think both trials, to a point, have done that in some way. Mm. A different way. So Different ways, different ways. Yeah. And, you know, the therapy trial was never powered. It was a smaller, it's a phase two trial. So it was mm. never powered to look for overall survival. Um, we don't have overall survival data yet for the therapy trial, uh, mm. but, you know, that, that that will come out eventually. And obviously that was uh, the vision trials around 800 patients. I think they expanded it a little bit. They mm. added some more patients. Mm. Uh, so it's well powered to look for overall survival, Yeah, which is, you know, very exciting and I'm thrilled that they've found a positive result. So, uh, looking for a future, what what is the next step for? for because pr probably this will be positive, and this will be a, a treatment for many patients uh, in the future. I think maybe this will be a game changer for for prostate cancer. Uh, what is uh, more to be done? This oh, there's a heap more, isn't there? So, um, uh, in terms of lutetium PSMA for treatment of prostate cancer, it's a very satisfying treatment to give uh, as a mm. clinician. And you do mm. get excellent patient responses, and you know the um, the improvement in pain, particularly, is mm. is is wonderful. Um, mm. So we need to prove overall survival. I think probably the vision trials going to do that. We need yeah. to prove it's better than chemotherapy, and then there's a whole suite of things we need to do. We need to find uh, synergistic combinations that are mm. going to work really, really well together to improve. We need to deepen and prolong responses. It's very nice to say that, you know, PSA progression-free survival is five or six months, but it's only mm. five or six months. Uh, it's not very long. And when you take patients who are metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, even at the very beginning, mm. uh, you know, once at their ADT, once their failed ADT and the PSA is starting to rise, the five-year survival for those patients is 20%. Uh, so 20% of men live for five years. And if you've got adverse prognostic factors, it's 5%. Hmm. So, uh, you know, we have a long way to go in terms of uh, improving that. Hopefully lutetium uh, PSMA therapy will, will definitely, you know, add to that survival. Uh, hmm. But then the question is how can we make that, that, make that last longer? And, I, you know, hmm. I think we've got a lot of information in terms of the androgen receptor and the PSMA receptor, and we're doing the NCP trial now in Australia. Mm. So that is a randomised trial in 160 mm. men are being run once again by ANZAP trials group of mm. enzalutamide versus enzalutamide plus lutetium PSMA. Um, mm. And then uh, Shanine Sandhu uh, from Peter McCallum Cancer Institute is mm. doing a, a series of trials Uh, one is lutetium PSMA plus immunotherapy to see if we can get that sort mm. of uh, value add with an abscopal effect, uh, and that's a phase one 
trial that's running at the moment. Lutetium PSMA plus a PARP inhibitor to see if we can improve radiation sensitization mm-hmm. within the cell. Um, and then also uh, a new trial that she's starting called Evolution, which is Lutetium PSMA plus um, ipilimumab and nivolumab combination. Uh, in men with mm-hmm. metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. So I suspect that people everywhere are going to be doing these combinations uh, where mm-hmm. we look to see what's the best fit, what can we put together, and hopefully we might end up coming up with uh, the R-CHOP for prostate cancer mm-hmm. that you see in lymphoma. In lymphoma, they don't treat anyone with one treatment or two treatments. They combine mm-hmm. four uh, mm-hmm. treatments together. And so I think that... Um, Lutetium PSMA therapy is an excellent treatment, uh, mm. but I think it, it's going to get better as mm. we uh, figure out what we should combine it with um, mm. and uh, to, to prolong those treatment responses. And then the question is whether we can give it earlier in yeah. the in the disease process um, and, you know, keep people, people well for longer rather than mm. waiting until they're really unwell and have lots of pain before we mm. use these kind of treatments. On the other hand, uh, I think people are talking about radium-223 and they're a little bit afraid uh, in the combination uh, without a drug. Was that not successful? Yeah, they didn't do very well, did they, with um, abiraterone and radium-223. But I I actually think in that situation you have to, A, um, sort of take the trial apart and look to see perhaps what went wrong and, B, also Mm. look to see how radium works and how um, Mm. lutetium PSMA works. So... With radium-223, we know it's a bone agent that specifically targets uh, the bone Mm. cells themselves Mm. rather than the cancer cells. Um, Mm. We know that abiraterone also causes um, significant bone loss. Uh, Mm. And when that trial, if they looked at the uh, subgroup analysis of patients who were on bone-sparing agents, um, Mm. the microfractures that they saw in those patients who got the combination of the abiraterone plus the radium uh, were not there. Hmm. So okay. uh, I, I think that, yeah, it, it's a little bit nerve-wracking to say we're going to cause problems uh, with fractures in patients hmm. uh, by combining um, radiation uh, or total body radiation like with uh, lutetium PSMA uh, and hmm. um, androgen receptor inhibitors. Uh, hmm. But I, I think that would be the wrong message uh, and that we should be brave again and try that again uh, hmm. but using bone-sparing agents. Uh, and being, mm. you know, very aware that that could be a problem. Other alpha radiations then, except for radium. I mean, yeah. what do you think about that? Actinium. Yeah, absolutely. I think we should be, I think there's going to be a role for all of them. Uh, so yeah. uh, actinium's really nice because it's, you know, it's got the 10 micron uh, path length, which means it, and, and it's also so powerful as uh, mm. a radionuclide therapy, you just, you know, you need a molecule in the cell and you get that double-stranded DNA damage and, and death. Well, with lutetium, you really need quite a lot in the cell before you get single-strand DNA damage translating mm. to double-stranded DNA um, damage. Mm. So you probably, you don't need, you know, with with uh, lutetium PSMA, you need quite bright activity on a PSMA PET in order to get good treatment response. Well, that's the assumption. With um, an alpha emitter, you probably don't need that. So that probably, you know, there's a lot more patients who would benefit from an alpha emitter than just from lutetium PSMA because mm. you don't need very bright PSMA expression in order to get a treatment response. I think that's very nice. 
But one of the things I think is um, underestimated with lutetium is its cluster bomb effect. So when when you give lutetium PSMA, uh, it's got a path length of about one millimeter. So if you've got a very mm. bright cell and it's got a not very bright cell next to it, or even a cell that's not expressing any PSMA uh, at all, you're still going to get cell death in all of those cells for about mm. a millimeter round. The, the cluster where you get nice bright disease. Um, and so that means that you can have quite heterogeneous uh, disease mm. that's still treated very effectively with lutetium mm. PSMA. If you've got an actinium, uh, then you're going to rely on having PSMA receptor expression there. Even though it could be lower, you're going to mm. rely on PSMA expression um, in order to get that actinium into the cell. Um, and at a practical level, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I know that people mm. are doing trials where they're combining lutetium PSMA and actinium mm. together, mm. Um, and that's logical, uh, definitely, because you're going to get, you know, the best of both worlds. You're going to get the cells that aren't particularly bright taking up the actinium. Uh, you're going to get better cell deaths in those PSMA positive cells, and you're going to get the, you know, the, the cluster bomb effect of the lutetium as well. So I'm sure you will mm. get deeper responses. Yeah. But is there any drawbacks with that? Because then you're hitting very hard, you could say, and very very broad. Yeah, there's major drawbacks uh, potentially. I mean, uh, you know, if you're using one of the nice things about using lutetium PSMA is that the you, we know that the salivary glands actually have quite um, uh, you know the toxicity in the salivary glands with lutetium PSMA stays fairly low. The vast majority of men get grade one dried mouth. They don't usually get grade two or grade three dry mouth. Uh, and dry mouth can be, it doesn't sound very much, but I think it can be very debilitating. And one of the things that you see with actinium is that incidence of grade two dry mouth goes up to about 30%, and you get a significant proportion of men who actually withdraw from trials because they can't tolerate the uh, xerostomia or the dry mouth that they get from the actinium. So, yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely um, a drawback uh, using actinium versus lutetium. And then we've also got the problem of, you know, uh, we're giving a higher dose, uh, renal dose as well. So we do get, yeah, so we do get, you know, a mild um, hit uh, with lutetium PSMA 617. We almost certainly get a mild um, toxicity to the kidneys with the six doses that are given currently. If we give actinium, uh, that will be higher again. And the question is how much can you give and how long does it take for those, for that kidney you know, function to deteriorate. So it might be that actinium is something that you can give later in the disease in mm. patients who've got very end-stage disease, but it's probably not something that you want to give to someone who's got another five years or six or seven years to live, or if we do that, we have to mm. do it very carefully. I mean, mm. we haven't really done that yet with lutetium PSMA either. We haven't given men with a life expectancy of greater than five years a lot of lutetium. Um, mm. That's something that Michael Hoffman and... Um, uh, at Peter McCallum is doing, and Arun Azad mm. with the mm. upfront PSMA study. Mm. They're taking men with newly diagnosed metastatic prostate cancer who are going to be going on chemotherapy with docetaxel, and they're randomising them to two doses of lutetium PSMA plus docetaxel versus docetaxel alone. Mm. And that's going to have, uh, that's a very interesting trial, um, uh, and it's going to have lo lots of things that we can take home from that. One of the things is how men do long-term um, and whether we can use these radionuclides earlier so uh, in the disease process. And I, I think taking those men who have metastatic 
hormone-sensitive prostate cancer diagnosis is a, is a good place to start. Talking about uh, uh, Michael Hoffman, he has uh, uh, described you as one of the highest recruiters to the therapy study and enormous experience that we know, absolutely. What is uh, the secret to your success here, Louise? Um, uh, what's the secret to my success? Uh, oh, I guess loving what I do. Uh, but, you know, I think that it was pretty easy to uh, recruit to the therapy trial. Who wouldn't want to be on a, um, a lutetium PSMA therapy trial? Um, so you just had to be friendly with all the oncologists. I mean, I think that's one of the big things in Theranostics is that we're not just working in nuclear medicine anymore. We're working in conjunction with all of our colleagues. So when you when you work on these trials, uh, the more oncologists you know, the more oncologists that you get on with and how much you harass them. Um, perhaps I nag a lot. Yeah. Uh, I think nagging is really, really helpful in trials and reminding people that these trials are, uh, are on, uh, that their patients will benefit and making it easy for them to put the patients on the trial. So at St Vincent's, we took patients for the therapy trial from uh, 50 kilometres away, 60 kilometres away. They came from all over. Um, and, and I think allowing access uh, to trials, not making the process difficult um, and making sure that oncologists know about the trials is, is really what helps us get them on. I get goosebumps. So <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> That's so good. It's so good. But, um, you know, I think everyone would do it if they, uh, if they, if they could see the results. It's time for the uh, Nobel Prize question. Ah. Uh, <laughs> who do you think should receive the Nobel Prize for their efforts in diagnostics? Wow, that's that. Who do I think should receive the Nobel Prize? Do, who do I think? Uh, look, I, I, I admire a lot of people. I admire Michael Hoffman enormously. Yeah. Uh, I think the way he's raised the profile of um, uh, Theranostics with his podcasts, mm. with his uh, with his wonderful trials that have got into really, mm. really good journals um, and the randomised trials. I think Oliver Sartor is amazing, uh, you know, mm. running the uh, vision trial. I really mm. think Tom Hope uh, in the States with his uh, dual-trained radiology, MRI, PSMA hat, plus his ability to, you know, move across um, uh, the specialty into therapy is, uh, mm. you know, very, very impressive. There's a, a huge number of people. I um, can, I, can I nominate a group? Yes. <laughs> yes, of, of course. course. Uh, you can do whatever thing, you want. The thing that I think's really changed in Theranostics is it's, well, we're not Zooming now, but it's, it's the ability to reach out uh, across continents mm. and reach out across states and develop these trial groups that can do so much more together. You know, it's mm. pretty amazing mm. what we can do now. Um, mm. Well, before we all used to just do our little studies and, you know, in our own little sandpit, and now we can really reach out and get advice and help and and do these mm. multi-centre, multinational trials that really change practice. And we're getting mm. better at making those faster and faster. Um, yeah. But so why? Why is it that development you talk about now? What is the key behind that? So I think there's a few de developments. I think it's um, uh, the internet. I think the ability to uh, to do this, uh, the communication, the ability to communicate. Mm. Um, it's not funding uh, because I don't think the funding has really changed. But it's uh, and then it's the radiochemistry. 
uh, when you look at what we had even 10 years ago, so there were aspects of uh, Theranostics that were roaring ahead with neuroendocrine, but when it becomes a mainstream cancer, a much bigger cancer like prostate cancer, suddenly uh, it is the funding as well. You know, you get uh, funders who come along for things like prostate cancer that won't come along for neuroendocrine, which is a sort of more of an orphan cancer or a rare cancer. Um, so having big player cancers in, in the space allows funding. The chemistry that's allowed that in the first place, the uh, internet to allow us to reach out and, and develop these big trials, um, and the fact that big industry, so pharma, is getting more involved uh, and they bring funding with it. So, yeah, I think you can thank prostate cancer for bringing um, Theranostics, pulling Theranostics into mainstream. And, and I think now that, they've, uh, that mainstream have discovered Theranostics, uh, it's really going to benefit it because it's going to pull it into breast cancer and lymphoma and, we, you know, people are going to be actively looking for these receptors uh, and proteomics is going to have a place, not just genomics, in everyone's thoughts. Who do you think we should invite to the podcast? Ah, uh, who do I think? Uh, so I think you should invite Tom Hope. Uh, and, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. Michael does all of his own um, uh, podcasts already, but I, I think he's a really interesting character and and the um the work he's doing is is really exceptional there's sally barrington is amazing with her work in lymphoma and doval criteria and you know pulling uh that that work that she's done looking at prognostic and predictive biomarkers in lymphoma is really exceptional um and her trials are very beautifully designed thank you louise for your time uh, i've you. learned a lot today about prostate oh. cancer uh okay. thank you so much Appreciate it. And you give hope. Great. Thank you for that. Yeah, that was uh, Louise Annette. What a scientist, what a clinician. Uh, I've learned a lot today. Yes. It uh, was uh, even better than I expected, I must say. She is so cool, generous, and so positive, hopeful, giving hope for the future. It was so interesting talking about, you know, the phenotype of the, the cancer and how to, you know, a little bit what Rod talked about, sequencing, find the right treatment in the right phase of the cancer, uh, because we will have a toolbox in the future and to write the to, to you know, to use the, the right tools in the right way. And the right timing. Yeah, and the right timing. Uh, and Louise, actually, she uh, promised us, uh, because she, she referred to a lot of, of publications, so she uh, promised us a, a biograph that we will publish on the website. So uh, please check out some Nordic website and you find a, a biograph of, of the publication that uh, Louise uh, referred to. Yes, Anna, what do you think? Should we close the podcast for today? Yes. Uh, if you want to reach out to us, please uh, visit our LinkedIn site or send us an email, podcast at thenordic.se, podcast at thenordic.se. Thank you for today, Yeah, yes. thank you. And as usual, stay safe, yes. stay tuned. Goodbye. Bye -bye. Bye.